having a niche and knowing your market and only working with that market means you are always on top of the research. You're always, you know, ready with the answer in most of the cases, or at least you can, you know, where to look for the answer if you haven't got it on the tip of your fingers. And, um, and when we think of the new graduate, it's always hard to choose that niche. But women's health is, at the end of the day, one of the biggest areas within natural health because women will seek out support from, from a natural therapist when they're not getting anywhere with their doctor. Hello and welcome. Mentoring with Geraldine is a bite-sized practitioner podcast for naturopaths, nutritionists, herbalists and practitioners. This podcast responds directly to your needs, the needs of the practicing natural therapist. With interviews, herbal discussions, something business and something clinical each week, you'll get the variety you need and enjoy to stay motivated in practice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mentoring with Geraldine and the Bite Size Podcast. And today I have the most amazing Moira Bradfield with me, and she really has squeezed in a bit of time. She's doing her PhD at the moment. And um, so I managed to wrangle just this tiny bit of time to find out what she's up to and for her to tell us all about her amazing course, which I have done. And um, it was great. It's definitely not anything out there that is the same or similar. Um, I can totally recommend, I'm going to put that right at the beginning of this podcast because we're just going to talk about all things vagina. So I'm not sure um, where you are currently, listeners. So you might want to pop your headphones in um, if you're in the car or you're on the bus or something and everybody's listening because we're going to be talking all things vagina right now. And the testing and um, Maura's got a webinar coming up. So we've got tons to talk about. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Maura. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So with your, um, how did you get into the area of, you know, all things vagina? What was, what dragged you to this? We all have a why and we all have, you know, a focus and a niche, but what dragged you to this niche in particular? Yeah, I think I was wandering aimlessly, like many practitioners, for a while there and had a very general practice practice. And um, in that, obviously, you never know what's going to walk through your door. And I had a run of clients who had vaginal issues. And what I found was what I applied didn't work. And I was frustrated. So I went, well, what do I not know about this area? And when I went digging, I didn't know a lot. And so what opened up and because we've got obviously more and more research coming out in all different areas of health but what opened up was a whole new microbiome for me and understanding that on a very um, physical level initially took me into different realms and what I realized is that we can't necessarily address this area independently from the rest of the body and we need to also consider that killing things is not necessarily the answer either i think there's a tendency to go just hit that with an antimicrobial and everything will be fine um so that's where it all started and and i never dreamed that it would become my niche but the more i dug into it the more clients i attracted and um obviously what i realized as well is more and more practitioners also didn't know what they were doing in this area and being having a long history in education it was a very natural leap for me to also uh, take that into the realms of education for other practitioners 
Yeah, I mean, I, I know as a practitioner, there was nothing until you came out. And it was a real struggle. I would have people in and I would be trawling through all of the research. And of course, when I started, a lot of that research was still on paper and it wasn't, you know, out there um, on the Internet. But there also weren't the forums, there weren't people talking about it. So it was really hard to find the information that you needed. So you're an absolute godsend when it came. You know, I mean, it's simple things. Candida, who knew? There were so many types. Who knew that you had to do so many different things? So, um, and all of the different possibilities of the things you can use, you do have a huge Facebook group. I mean, there's what, two and a half thousand people in that Facebook group. And I will put the link in the show notes to the Facebook group if you're not in it, practitioners. It is a practitioner group. Um, and then you have your courses. And then now something that has changed is testing. We didn't have any testing before, really. We had a basic swab or a, oh, that's a bit gunky, must be candida, you know, the visual and the smell. And that was about it. So now there's a really good lot of microbiome testing out there for the vagina. Can you just very quickly tell us what's available and what, you know, because I know you've got a course coming out about it because it's so new. Do you want to talk us through it a bit? Yeah, I, I think uh, I want to start by saying that those other tests still have relevance and mm -hmm. nothing beats a good case history um, because interpreting any of these things, including basic cultures and microscopy and microbiome panels, requires you to understand your patient and their symptom patterns mm -hmm. um, so that you can understand the relevance because the microbiome needs to be considered as a whole thing rather than yeah. micro-focusing in on one thing you know, and trying to move or eradicate it. So, um, you know, those are things that the cultures and swabs I still use a lot of in clinic and they're a great first point to understand if there's anything really imminent that needs to be addressed and, and targeted. Um, but then we have the ability now to look at whole microbiome panels or to look at panels that might be picking and choosing specific microbes that are common problem makers within vaginal health or also associated with patterns of health. Um, things like lactobacillus microbes, for example, to have a lot of those is usually means that your microbiome is in good shape. So uh, what my goal around educating as well with microbiome panels is, again, is understanding the relevance of it because, you know, we don't want to kill everything. This is an ecosystem. And just like any ecosystem, the low-level microbes are just as important as the high-level microbes. And that if you start manipulating it without knowing what's going on, then you run the risk of causing long-term damages that are unpredictable and, you know, environmental disasters, essentially. So we need to um, have that perspective on it. So in what are we intending to do in the December webinar with for the microbiome panels is sort of talk people through the available testing because globally there are different panels and they each have pros and cons associated with them. We have different forms of technology. We have 16S. We have, um, you know, whole next generation sequencing uh, using um, metabiome and things like that. And then you can also use quantitative PCR and still use culture-based methods and different microbes and have different relevance when you're using different methods. So we understand uh, what we're looking at, what the test that you're looking at, what its um, perhaps strengths and weaknesses are. And so therefore, you know, if things don't change or if you're not seeing what you're expecting, because I think that's also important to, before you get a, a microbiome panel back, you need to already have an idea of what you think you might be able to see because it needs to confirm 
what you're clinically making assumptions around and what your differential process is clinically as well. Um, and then that will help you make decisions around treatment um, and or you know prescription and how that person can actually manage that condition as well. And, and like any microbiome, it goes through fluctuations. So a test is only a snapshot of time, you know, and so you need to also think about how that might change and what influences would cause that to change as well. Yeah, in your course, you've got a number of cheat sheets because as you've just said, you know, you're looking at differential diagnosis and you're looking at everything that's going on. And so I've got, I think I've got one of your cheat sheets on my wall just over there. There we go. Clinical differentiation of of vaginal disorders. I've got one from your course. So one <laughs> from one of your courses, I've got a number of things on my pin board and that's one of them. And uh, because these cheat sheets are great, because we start, we go through, we take that case, we find out about our client, we find out about all these symptoms, we do all of those things. And then we, we make that assumption, don't we, in our heads. But it's great sometimes to know, you know, you do the testing and you know, hey, I've got it all right. Or you do the testing and you go, I did not know that that was going to happen, that that was going to be there as well. And uh, I mean, stress can make things worse for people. There's all sorts of, you know, um, what am I trying to say here? There's all sorts of things that can make somebody's problem worse, such as stress, but there's things that we can do to make them better and actually being able to target it properly through a good um, breakdown of the case and a good understanding of the client's problem and then having this knowledge behind us because, I mean, the majority of the population are, you know, are women. <laughs> and we all have a vagina and so we're all likely to you know have a problem at some point in our life and so knowing that there's a system out there you know, there's training out there to help us to deal with it and there's people like yourself who are studying this area I can't believe you're doing um, a PhD I'm just I'm so impressed and I'm I've I've got more of the brains on my podcast I love it <laughs> <laughs> because I mean it's so hard how are you fitting in studying for a PhD doing your PhD and running your practice I know that you're online now so you've given up your room for the for the time being um, up on the Gold Coast but you work online how do you fit in all the um, education the research the PhD and the clients how are you getting it all in there yeah, probably in an, uh, I mean, I'm managing it. It's probably not overly healthy at times, I think, and, and I notice that and draw back on it. Um, sometimes I wish I had one of those uh, timekeeping devices that Hermione has in Harry Potter where I can replicate <laughs> myself. Sadly, Go back and do it again. I don't. Um, you know, in terms of my clinical practice, I have quite set times where I work on that. And, and I am a full-time PhD student. So that is my, where the majority of my time is allocated. And that's where, you know, that is preferential to everything. And that something changes there. I have to be able to reschedule and drop everything to meet the PhD demand um, because that was the commitment I made. And that's the other thing is I just keep reminding myself that I chose this and that the outcome is something that I wanted. So I can't be resentful of that process either because that type of study is hard and, you know, and has its challenges associated with it. So segmenting time is important and, and being a, a full-time student, I'm also limited to how many hours I can actually work um, mm. formally as well, which is also very good to stick to that for me yeah. 
So um, I have an online clinic. I do a majority of my um, client-based hours are Friday. And then I also will see people after hours on one day of the week. So I have a very short clinic one evening, which allows me to also see people globally because timeframes mm-hmm. are different. And that works in with my life because then my days are uni-based and um, apart from Friday, which is a clinic day. So, and then I, I've become much more time efficient in terms of doing everything I do in the consultation. And that comes obviously with um, practice and many years in clinical practice of being able to make those sorts of decisions and not needing to necessarily go back to the drawing board with research. And part of my, uh, the privilege I think of doing the type of study that I'm doing is that I'm immersed in the subject matter anyway. So I'm always um, having access to that information and, and put that in practice clinically and and as we progress in my research then that also informs my clinical practice as well yeah that's the thing isn't it I mean there's that the very real prospect of overwhelm as for all of us as clinicians having a niche and knowing your market and only working with that market means you are always on top of the research you're always you know, ready with the answer in most of the cases, or at least you can, you know where to look for the answer if you haven't got it on the tip of your fingers. And, um, and when we think of the new graduate, it's always hard to choose that niche. But women's health is, at the end of the day, one of the biggest areas within natural health, because women will seek out support from from a natural therapist when they're not getting anywhere with their doctor. So it's great that we're there for our clients. But overwhelm is huge. And so we talk about overwhelm a lot. I was talking, um, I've been talking with a number of practitioners about overwhelm and how they deal with it. And you've got a number of hobbies. I thought you might like to share those while we're on here because you, um, you've got two amazing little doggies. I mean, you've got a son as well. He's not a hobby. Children aren't hobbies. Um, <laughs> but, but you have got some very cool hobbies. So you do, you try, you make sure that you are having time away from your PhD, time away from your business, don't you? Yeah, I mean, as an individual, I have a tendency to fatigue. That is my weak spot. If I ever am going to go down, that's where I go down. And so I'm very mindful of how I moderate that. And um, I get up very early. Our house is an early rising house, so we're up by five. And, And sometimes that means that I do work in the morning, but it also means at nighttime I don't, do work unless there's an absolute deadline and that's when I take the time out to spend time with my family on a weekday Um, I have hobbies uh, arts and crafts are my outlet I think creativity I've always been a creative person and being in a very academic um, track at the moment there's little time for that in that everything has to be so evidence-based and so I take time out to paint and do some very nana things like crochet and um, you know whatever really needs doing because that's how I relax essentially is to you know get my hands dirty and then there is a lot of tv watching I'm not going to lie as well sometimes it just requires lying supine on a couch and you know tracking through some vampire drama so I think that you know we need to be okay with that as well like the rest can come in different forms and it doesn't all have to be ticking things off at least I've meditated today I've had a bath today I've taken a walk today you know that can be very um spontaneous and sometimes you do fall down and that's okay but yeah hobby wise it's more creative for me than anything and and I I mean no exercise is obviously important for all of us and um, I've recently in the last year gone back to adult ballet 
there yeah. we go. After 20 years of not being uh, a ballet dancer, I think when I went into practice, when I first started, uh, after I graduated, I'd stopped being a ballet dancer and I've gone back to it and it's amazing what muscle memory can do, but it's also um, a very telling uh, habit to to let you know where your body's at age-wise. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, I can't imagine doing that. I never, I think I did a week at ballet and I think my daughter did a week at ballet and I think that was it. And I can't imagine at all going back to ballet. So um, congratulations. <laughs> I mean, we all exercise. I do Pilates. I'll, you know, I'll put it down there. You know, ballet dancers do Pilates, don't they? So, you know, hey, I'm kind of a ballet dancer in my own way, sort of not. Um, but so what I'm trying to make sure everybody out there understands is you're doing a PhD. You've got this amazing business, but you've been in practice for how long? 20 years, I think. 20 years, so two decades of being in practice. So over that time, you've developed your systems. When we started out, there, you know, everything was on paper. We were handing out pieces of paper to everyone. We had to write every piece of paper ourselves. Now there's lots of resources, like all of your resources and your courses and everything else. So the pieces of paper were made for us to hand out, which is just amazing. It's easy to find things online. We don't have to go through books anymore or our books are online as well. So that's great. You can just search within a book and it comes up with however many times you've put it in. So but what I really want to get across to everybody listening is don't forget that downtime. Don't forget that even though you're as busy as you will eventually be as an amazing practitioner as, um, as you are. And, um, but it takes time and it takes time to develop those practices and those systems, but remember your boundaries and remember that, that downtime that you need, that relaxation that you need and to do other things. So, but some of the other things, of course, they can do is your upcoming um, webinar. So tell us a little bit about the webinar before we go. So that's on the December the 15th. So Wednesday, the December the 15th. So what's, what's that about? So the webinar in December is interpreting vagina microbiome panels so it's sort of a, a crash course if you like because of this explosion of panels available to us in what I um, perceive to be the most important things to remember when you're looking at a vagina microbiome panel and how you need to relate that to case history um, and what that might mean for an individual because we're, you know we're dealing with obviously people that have vaginas but that can be very diverse as well and we know that in vaginal microbiome health there are different profiles that constitute healthy and some of them on paper don't look that healthy even if they are and so we need to be able to recognize that as well so it's going to take um, participants through you know the process of ordering of choosing uh, what is available and what their pros and cons are and also what that means clinically how to utilize those results clinically um, and and have perspective essentially is my key I think takeaway for that brilliant absolutely brilliant well I'm excited for that um, so everyone in the show notes you will find the link to book into that and to find out more about Moira's courses and how to do her um, how to join Vagiversity as it's called now and um, but I'd just like to say thank you so much Moira for joining us today it's been absolutely brilliant having you on and thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule <laughs> for being with us Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me um, anytime. 
Thanks so much for joining me today. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast for the weekly episodes. If you'd like even more support and learning, then the Academy is for you. Here you'll find part two of the herbal discussions, more clinical learning, and case studies to support your clients in practice. Bye for now.